Blog Talk Radio. And here we go, folks. It is Sunday. Uh, let's see, January the 4th, 2015, and you are listening to tonight's live edition of the Ugly Truth broadcast. That's right, folks, it is a live edition. I hope everyone out there can hear me if you are listening. I uh, misprinted the call-in number, so if you'd like to listen to the program, if you'd like to participate in the program, the call-in number is 347 and as usual, folks, the old rules apply. Uh, if you're here to cause trouble, don't bother. Uh, if you want to participate in an intelligent, productive conversation, by all means, call in. And make sure that you have an identifiable phone number, folks, because um, that is, of course, uh, one of the main ways by which uh, troublemakers like to cause trouble is that they they like to do their, uh, their trouble uh, anonymously. So I hope uh, you can all hear me out there. Let me check my phone and see if we are broadcasting. Yes, we are. Um, Let me apologize ahead of time, folks, for all of the sound effects you're going to be hearing, such as me sniffing and coughing and all the rest of it. I picked up – well, this is the remnants of a cold that I picked up while uh, traveling across the country, bringing our good friend Michael Collins Piper uh, all the way out here to North Idaho from Washington, D.C., Yes, folks, he is uh, officially now a North Idahoan. Those of you who follow uh, the uh, things going on on the website will know that Mike uh, was fired from his job of 35 years at American Free Press after uh, basically uh, putting the paper uh, on the map, as it were, uh, earning millions of dollars for that newspaper through his books and his articles uh, the the reward for this, the way that they showed their gratitude for this, was by throwing this man out onto the street with nothing. And so, uh, us understanding the importance of this thing known as Gentile solidarity, uh, we uh, we did what we could. And when I say we folks, uh, I mean a handful of people. Unfortunately, that was all that we were able to muster up was a handful of people to help out with the expenses and uh, some of the other heavy lifting that was involved in getting Mike from point A to point B. And as I mentioned, I think on the last uh, podcast that I did uh, last month, uh, there is a family nearby who have a small home, and they have uh, offered to let Mike stay there as long as need be until he can uh, hopefully get on disability. Uh, the update on that, folks, is that Mike has been denied his disability, even though he has paid into this now uh, for the 35 years uh, that he has been working and paying taxes. Um, and so, uh, you know, we've got to work on getting Mike on his feet. And uh, that is what I'm hoping to do by uh, at least for the next month. Offering these live programs again for free. I, I sent out a notice this morning saying that uh, this would be appreciation month, and this reason we were going to go ahead and and pay the fee necessary for programs here. And uh, there's there's a psychology work in doing this, folks. 
that you know it's easy when you are relegated to just doing recorded programs uh to just uh to say ah oh, I'll do it later you know I'm not going to do it right now uh and then just to not follow through on it especially if you've got a lot of stuff to do uh like uh, we have around here right now and so having a live program however obviously this changes things a bit uh when you have a scheduled program and when you've told uh, 4000 subscribers there on the website that there's going to be a live program uh you uh want to uh, follow through on that and so that's uh, that's the psychology that's at work here and by the way folks if i sound a little bit and i do apologize also for the fact that this program is coming to you very late but the fact of the matter is is that i spent the entire day uh working with our good friend mike piper uh moving furniture from the uh storage facility where all of his stuff is being kept uh, presently it was shipped out here by train uh while I drove him uh by car back out here and so I spent the entire day with him uh rummaging through his stuff and loading it into the car and bringing it uh to his new place and so uh I'm running a bit late on things I didn't get in and in in addition to this folks we were doing all of this as the snow was coming down at the rate of about uh an inch and a half an hour so uh so I'm just running a little bit behind on that so I apologize for the lateness of this uh, program. Uh here it's, it's 8 o'clock uh Pacific so on the East Coast obviously that puts it at 11 p.m. Those of you out there who are um uh, the the real troopers who have stayed up to listen to this program uh I appreciate that. Um let's see. Uh we uh as I said folks uh I I gave out the uh, call-in number incorrectly. Uh, on the notice. So if you would like to call in and participate in tonight's show, I'd ask you to kind of hold off for a while uh, because there are a few news items that I'd like to discuss. Uh, the call-in number is 347-989-8550. And by the way, uh, for those uh, few folks who have helped out with the moving expenses, and uh, we even had a few people show up there in Washington, D.C. to help Mike uh, load up his uh, you know all of his belongings that were you know going to be put on a train and shipped out here there were actually a few people who helped out with that um uh, thank you very much for that that was uh you know that really is uh, rise to the call of duty uh those who offered to help out and then didn't do anything well what can i say folks this is uh, the nature of this movement unfortunately you know it uh, the truth just gets uglier every day this is something obviously that has impacted upon uh, my own willingness to continue doing this at least at the rate and at the deep involvement that i have been doing it when you come to understand that you know for the most part for the most part uh what we have here is a collection of people who really are just let's just call it for what it is folks bored uh they uh they have nothing better to do with their time than to jump from website to website uh, leaving comments but when when it comes down to actually walking the walk they will talk the talk but when it comes down to actually walking the walk uh and uh and doing what needs to be done for the good of um of uh, what we like to call here as the gentile defense league um suddenly they are in very short order you know, I'm reminded of uh, of that parable that uh, we read in the gospel, where Jesus is talking about 
the various people who are, uh, you know, once they are exposed to the truth, the various types of people uh, there are, some of them, they're very fervent about it in the beginning, and then uh, when the challenges come, they uh, they melt away. He uses all of this, uh, of course, he describes all of this within the parable of um, seed that is cast upon the ground. He said some seed falls upon rock where it sprouts very quickly, grows very fast, but then in the heat of day, uh, it wears away. And then other seed falls amongst thorns where the weeds are choked or it's choked out by weeds. And then he said, but then there are some where the seed falls upon good soil and it produces uh, uh, good fruit. And I Unfortunately, folks, those numbers are very few, and I think that this is what Jesus meant. And I'm here I'm speaking of Jesus, of course, folks, as the teacher, as the philosopher, as uh, the uh, political activist, as the anti-Zionist activist. Um, the road to uh, the road to the truth is is very narrow, where to lies and to destruction is very wide and it's very well traveled this is what jesus this is how jesus described it and uh, i think that that's true even within our own movement unfortunately we have a lot of uh well, i was just talking with mike about this uh today as we were loading stuff into the car i said we've got too many mouths and not enough brains in this movement uh lots of people who make noise but uh who are willing to actually engage their brains along with their mouths or even um you know what we would call their guts, their courage, and to to do the hard things that need to be done. You know, it's not just writing articles, folks. It's not just holding up signs at uh, rallies and things like that. Sometimes it's just helping one of our own, such as Mike Piper, who's been thrown under the bus uh, and uh, who has no recourse other than for him to be helped out by his own people. Sometimes that's what it means to be a real revolutionary. And I'm not saying this in in uh, any way to pat myself on the back, but I really do think, as I have um, as I have uh, said to a few people uh, who are very close to this situation, what was done to Mike and what has happened to him really is it should be a warning uh, to all of us who are involved in this. You know, there is no solidarity. There is no singleness of purpose. Uh, and you better understand this if you get involved in this. You know, you may think that you're part of something, that you're part of a group, that you're part of a big family, and we're all working together. And this is just not true, folks. Uh, don't too much, as the old saying goes, don't put all of your eggs into one basket with re with regards to this, because if it can happen to Mike, folks, with as important as he is in the bigger scheme of things, it can happen to any or all of us. So anyway, on that note, folks, I'm going to apologize again for the uh, the rough quality of my voice. Like I said, I am still uh, carrying around the remnants of this uh, nasty little cold that I picked up uh, somewhere between Idaho and uh, Iowa, where I met Mike, he uh, was actually driven from Washington, D.C. by our good friend Merlin Miller, uh, who uh, picked up the entire tab of everything despite us uh, trying to pay for the gas and all of the rest of that. Merlin drove him from Washington, D.C. all the way to Iowa. 
Uh, I met Mike in Iowa and then drove him out here to Idaho because, quite frankly, folks, given the fact that I was making this trip on a car that had uh, 250,000 miles on it, uh, I thought the shorter distance that I uh, traveled on this, the better. Anyway, all right, folks, it looks like we do have some uh, some people uh, lining up listening. It's good to see you all there. Like I said, if uh, if you would like to participate in this conversation that we will be having, uh, you're free to do so. Make sure that you have a recognizable uh, number. The number is 347-989-8550. Okay, let's just jump into uh, a few discussions, a few, I'm sorry, a few stories. Like my, like I said, my my brain still uh, half awake from spending most of the day out in the cold, uh, moving furniture and and other uh, things from point A to point B for our good friend Mike Piper. Okay, well, folks, one of the things that I do want to touch on very quickly before I jump into these stories, you know, when we were making the trip uh, from Iowa to Idaho. As I have said before on previous programs, you know, we don't have TV per se out here in uh, the great northwest, at least not here in north Idaho. We have about two channels that we can pick up if atmospheric conditions are just right. And so I don't really get the opportunity to watch TV, at least watch TV as most Americans get to see it. Uh, unless I'm traveling and I happen to uh, uh, be in a motel or something like that where they've got cable and I can see, um, you know, what the rest of the country is watching. Well, as I was traveling, and I guess in this regard it was beneficial to us, uh, you, you know, you could see this very, very dramatic and this very, very important thing taking place with regards to the price of gasoline. Uh, it had dropped to, I think, $2.50 a gallon when we were making Am I still on? Yeah, we're still on. Okay. Uh, about $2.50. I can't remember the last time it was that cheap uh, while we were making our trip. And uh, I was watching the news as uh, as we would travel from place to place, listening to it on the radio. And that was all that you heard about was the price of gas. Couldn't have come at a better time. Christmas season and, you know, the American economy is in the toilet and all of the rest of that. And uh, it was funny because while I was on the road, I was talking to my wife periodically. We have a friend, uh, we, have, we have a family up here that we know that we're friends with who are from uh, Russia. And they were talking about what was going on now with the chaotic situation in Russia because of these low oil prices. And my wife said, what's going on here? Uh, because uh, our friends were very panicked over this because uh, their family back in Russia, uh, they were in panic mode because they couldn't buy food. They couldn't get – you know, everything was just – coming down like the Twin Towers on 9-11. And my wife told me, she said um, that her her friend, what her friend told her is she said, you know, everybody in Russia thinks that the Americans have done this. And my wife asked me, she said, well, what is going on? And I said, well, which version do you want? Do you want the long version or the short version? 
And uh, she said, we'll start with the short, and then we'll we'll move on with the, the long version. So I said, okay, <clears throat> excuse me. I said, first of all, you know, uh, prices like this don't fall by accident. They don't go from nearly $4 a gallon to uh, almost $2 a gallon overnight like this uh, unless things are put in place sometimes as far back as six months or maybe sometimes even as far back as a year previous to that in order to make this happen. This is how the commodities markets work and things like that. You have to – you know, it's it's like any big ship – uh, that is cruising along at a certain speed. You know, the old law of inertia that a body at rest tends to stay at rest and a body at motion tends to stay at motion. Uh, this is uh, the way that economies go as well. So you don't have oil crashing in price to almost half what it was overnight unless things were put in place months earlier in order to bring this about. And what I would uh, give to you, excuse me, what I would give to you listeners uh, in that regard is uh, take, for example, the Twin Towers of 9-11 and how uh, Building 7, I believe it was Building 7, how Larry Silverstein, who was uh, a good friend of Benjamin Netanyahu's, uh, obviously a Jewish, obviously uh, a big supporter of Israel, he I think he, he said once that he talks to Netanyahu on the phone. I can't remember what he said, if it was once a day or if it was once a week, but it was uh, pretty often, enough so that you could uh, easily conclude from that that, uh, that they, are, they were on very close terms. Okay, Larry Silverstein, being uh, uh, interviewed after 9-11, <clears throat> said plainly on the camera talking about uh, Building 7, he said, we decided to pull it. And um, this is uh, language that is used by people in civil engineering uh, and particularly in demolitions, people who, uh, whose job is to uh, implode buildings and to bring them down safely. Uh, we decided to pull it. Well, I asked uh, a few people who uh, know something about this, about uh, building demolitions and things like that. I said, how long does it take? to do the preparatory work in bringing down a building safely, particularly one in downtown Manhattan in the business district down by Wall Street, how long would it take to do the work uh, in preparing that building so that it could be, quote unquote, pulled down through controlled demolition? And uh, all of the people uh, who I know who know something about this said just the just going over the schematics alone and the blueprints and finding all of the particular points on that building uh, where these charges have to be placed to bring this building down safely it takes months just to go over and then after that obviously it takes months to do the work of placing these explosives sure that they are all timed to go off at a certain point uh, so that uh, within milliseconds of each other so that this building comes down upon itself in its own footprint, I think is the language that they use. Uh, likewise, folks, when, when we're talking about the implosion of an economy, 
such as we are witnessing take place right now in Vladimir Putin's Russia. It takes months for these kinds of things to uh, to finally, you know, to pull it, using Larry Silverstein's words. So it's not just the, you know, uh, Obama, when he was quoted about the whole situation in Russia, he said, yes, yeah, well, the sanctions are working. You know, they started putting these sanctions uh, on Russia a few months ago after all of this business with the Ukraine. Uh, of course, the Americans and Benjamin Netanyahu are not at all happy about the fact that Russia is uh, sitting there very recalcitrant uh, with a uh, with firm determination that they're going to continue to stand behind the government of uh, Bashar al-Assad. It's not just these sanctions, folks. It's the fact that months ago, probably within milliseconds, of the Russians I'm not even going to word say the word annexing Crimea because that's not what took place. Uh the people of Crimea held a national referendum and they elected to become part of Russia. Okay. I don't like that word annex because it makes it sound as though the people of Crimea were, you know, held at gunpoint against their will and forced to become part of uh, Russia. And this was not the case at all, because the people of Crimea are, uh, by large, by, by a large majority, they are Russian speakers, they are Russian in their culture, uh, and they uh, wanted to become part of Russia. They already saw themselves as part of Russia. Well, we know that Obama and uh, Cameron and Netanyahu and all of the rest of the gang uh, were extremely upset about this. You see, because – and this is something that – well, I'll tell you what, folks. I've kind of set the stage here for the first uh, story that I wanted to discuss, so I'm just going to go ahead and jump into this. It's actually a, an article written by Patrick Buchanan. It's entitled, Is War in the Cards for 2015? And I'm going to read uh, this to you. I apologize again for the uh, rough voice. Uh, it's uh, uh, some kind uh, person somewhere between here and Iowa decided that uh, I would be better off uh, with a cold than without one, and that's the reason why why I've got it. So anyway, so Patrick Buchanan writes as follows, quote, if you see 10 troubles coming down the road, you can be sure that nine will run into the ditch before they reach you, unquote, said Calvin Coolidge, whose portrait hung in the cabinet room of the Reagan White House. Among the dispositions shared by the two conservatives was a determination to stay out of other people's wars. Peering into 2015, there are wars into which our interventionists are eager to plunge that represent no immediate or grave threat to the United States. One is the war the Islamic State group is waging in Syria and Iraq, a menace so great that we are, we are told it may require U.S. ground troops. But why? Syria and Iraq are 5,000 miles away, and because of its barbarism and incompetence, the Islamic State is losing support in the Sunni lands it now occupies. The Kurds have halted the group's advance towards Irbil, Iraq. Shiite militias, no friends of ours, have halted its advance towards Baghdad. The Islamic State is under steady drone and air attack by the U.S. and Arab allies. Iran is providing men and material to Damascus and Baghdad in their battle against the group. 
Now the Turks and Gulf Arabs, including the Saudis, appear to have wakened to the threat and are weighing in against the Islamic State. Why not let them do the fighting? By staying out of the two world wars of the 20th century until the other great powers were fully engaged and horribly bled, America emerged triumphant with the fewest casualties and the least damage. That used to be called statesmanship. Moreover, compared with Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan, Stalin's Soviet Union, and Mao's China, the Islamic State doesn't even make the quote JV to use Barack Obama's term. Last month, the drums were beating for an attack on North Korea for what Senator called, quote, a new form of warfare and what Senator Lindsey Graham called, quote, cyber terrorism aided by China. In, quote, a reply to Kim's cyber terrorism, unquote, the Wall Street Journal urged, quote, a forceful response in deterring future attacks. Swiftly, there followed the crashing of North Korea's internet system. Question, if reports are true that Sony Pictures was hacked by ticked-off ex-employees, yet North Korea's internet was brought down by a U.S. cyber attack, who is the cyber terrorist now? Perhaps some of those Iranian technicians at Natanz who watched their centrifuges breaking down and blowing up from the Stuxnet virus have some thoughts on this. Now, Here's where the relevant part to Buchanan's piece uh, begins, folks. But the most determined push for war in 2015 will come from neocons and interventionists who want a U.S.-Putin confrontation and regime change in Russia. And as Russia has a nuclear arsenal to match our own, this is a matter of real gravity. Because of U.S.-EU sanctions on Russia for its role in Ukraine and the collapse in the price of oil, Russia's principal export, the ruble, has lost half its value and the economy faces a contraction of 5% in 2015. Real hardships lie ahead for the Russian people, but it seems they are not blaming Vladimir Putin for their troubles. They are blaming us. Quote, according to the respected Moscow Levada Center, which measures political sentiment in Russian society, the New York Observer reports 70% of Russians have a negative feeling towards the USA. In the 1990s, 80% had positive attitudes towards America. Currently, 76% of Russians hate Obama personally, and only a meager 2% like him. These are the maximum peaks of anti-American feelings in Russia in years. Just last week, Visa and MasterCard completely stopped their operations in Crimea, leaving more than 2 million people there without access to their money. One Moscow supermarket is using American flags as doormats, and customers are wiping their feet on them. Before going home, Congress voted to levy new sanctions on Russia and authorized U.S. lethal weapons to be sent to Kiev to enable Ukraine to retake Luhansk and Donetsk and perhaps Crimea. Obama signed the bill. With Republican hawks taking over all congressional committees dealing with foreign and defense policy, peace and war in the new year, there will be a competitive clamor that Obama send the guns to Kiev. And what happens then? Will Putin abandon the rebels and face the rage of the Russian people for backing down? Will Putin wait for the U.S. anti-tank weapons and ammunition to arrive and to be sent to eastern Ukraine? Or will Putin, the decisive sort, send in the Russian army before the U.S. weapons arrive, hive off a land bridge to Crimea and maybe more for bartering purposes, and call Obama's bluff? 
In his New Year's message to the Russian people, Putin hailed the annexation of Crimea as an achievement that, quote, will forever remain a landmark in the national history. It doesn't sound as if he'll be giving Crimea up anytime soon. It's tough to make predictions, especially about the future, said the wise Yogi Berra, but one prediction seems not too risky. Either Obama and Putin will enter negotiations over Ukraine, or the war in Ukraine, with 4,700 dead since April, gets bigger and wider. Now, I have followed Pat Buchanan's work for a long time. In fact, I actually had the uh, pleasure of having dinner with him once, folks, in Iowa about uh, 20 years ago uh, when he was running for president. And one thing that I uh, know about Buchanan is that uh, he's one of these uh, tip-of-the-iceberg type uh, commentators. He knows what the real deal is, uh, but he's very careful about playing too much of his hand. And I would be willing to bet, if I were the betting type and if I actually had something to bet, I would be willing to bet that right now Pat Buchanan uh, is thinking seriously about getting out of Washington, Washington D.C. environs because of this situation uh, with Russia. What has been done here, the collusion that has taken place uh, with the uh, Saudi regime to continue pumping oil at such a rate that it that the Saudis can't even break even. They are putting oil on the market, selling oil below to pump it out of the ground. Okay, in order to drive down which is Russia's main export. And and one thing that I did not realize, but have since uh, learned in the uh, uh, business of, of following all of this going on uh, with uh, the price of oil in Russia, is that Russia is forced to uh, import most of its finished goods. I didn't realize this. I thought that uh, that Russia was better positioned industrially. The fact of the matter is, is that she is forced to import most of her goods. So as the price of oil crashes and Russia is losing her socks in the oil market, uh, the the ruble has lost half its value against the dollar just over the course of a few months' time. Uh, all of these situ all of these conditions. Th this is what's known as the perfect storm. You'll, if you think back to that uh, movie, uh, f uh, featuring uh, what's his name, George Clooney, and you've got these fishermen who are out there and they're they're trying to get one more haul in, you know, and and to make some money. I don't know if it was before Christmas or what it was. And as they're sailing out to sea, uh, all of these conditions come together in such a way so as to create this thing that they refer to as the perfect storm. And, of course, this is the storm that uh, sinks the ship and kills everybody on board. Well, this is precisely the situation that we are facing right now, folks. Uh, the Russian situation with her uh, economy, uh, an oil-based – an oil export-based economy – uh, where you have a uh, a population of people who are dependent upon the importation of foreign goods, but folks, the the situation is, if we can at least if we can believe the polls 
that are being conducted by those whose job is to do things like this is that the people, the Russian people, they aren't blaming Putin. They're not blaming their government. Okay, so what this means is that the the American and the Western and the Israeli plan here, which was to cause all of this economic turmoil in Russia in the hopes that uh, – because let's face it, folks. When things go down the toilet here in the United States, who do we blame for it? Who, who do we – the president gets the blame, and he gets the credit if things are going well. This is just – this is – this is the way that it is. You know, the average Joe who's out there uh, working 40 hours a week in order to feed his wife and children, uh, he doesn't have the luxury of uh, delving very deeply into politics and understanding how markets work and all of the rest of that stuff. So when all of a sudden, you know, the price of bread jumps from a dollar a loaf to uh, $2 a loaf. And milk has jumped from $2 a gallon to $4 a gallon. And now he's got half as much food uh, on his uh, uh, dinner table at night. And his wife is looking at him in a funny way saying, you know, what's going on? You're the breadwinner here. Uh, you know, the kids are going without, blah, blah, blah. Who does he blame for that? Does he understand the way that the, the, the interconnectedness of foreign markets, does he understand how he doesn't understand any of that, folks. So, so who, who does he look at? He says, uh, you know, this has to go all the way to the top. Well, as has been demonstrated, particularly over the course of the last century, this model has worked very well in countries where America and the West and Israel, where they want to create as much destabilization and as discontent as possible in the hopes that people will come pouring out uh, into the streets demanding that the government step down. And in this way, governments are uh, bought and sold as if they were uh, you know, stocks on the stock exchange. But see, this isn't happening in Russia if we're to believe what the polls say. The people are standing behind the government by as much as 80%. So what we have here, folks, is a nation that is politically rallied around its government, politically rallied around its uh, president. And they're going to stand by him with whatever decision he decides to make on this. Does the United States do next? Okay, if they can't make life uncomfortable for the people in the interests of creating social and political and economic stability, and if the people are rallied around their government, rallied around their president, then that means that we have to go to Plan B. Now. As I have been out and about uh, in town with Mike, uh, moving his furniture out of the storage facility, uh, bringing it uh, over to his new place, you know, we've been looking at the price of gas. I actually saw it tonight, folks. Uh, it was down below $2 a gallon here in Idaho. I don't know what it is in other parts of the country, but suffice it to say, it hasn't been this cheap in a long, long time. And every time it goes down, you know, 
one of us will point to the sign, you know, and say, look at that. And uh, the other, uh, Torally, responds, boy, the American people sure are going to be mad when that oil jumps back up to $4 a gallon. And when it is blamed on Russia and it is blamed on Vladimir Putin, they are going to be calling for somebody's blood. And I think that that is exactly what is in the cards. I wrote this uh, in some commentary that I left on a story that uh, I actually posted uh, in uh, a motel room, a Motel 6, and I think it was Cheyenne, Wyoming. When I could see what was happening, I said, oh, that's what they're going to do. It's Christmas time, and so they so they have uh, scheduled the price of oil to drop so low that gas is now at around $2 a gallon. All of the talking heads on all the various uh, media outlets were talking about how the American economy has finally resurrected itself, and things are looking great, and happy days are here again, and blah, 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 blah. And then all of a sudden, folks, in the midst of all of this optimism, and it looks like we're finally going to crawl out of the sewer here and things are going to get better, bam, imagine what happens when an oil tanker is blown up or something happens. Something somewhere goes boom and it's blamed on Russia that causes the oil markets uh, to go into panic mode and for oil to shoot up again. And it's easy to do, folks. They they can remote control this six months in advance. <clears throat> they can set up a situation whereby through manipulating uh, commodities contracts and uh, oil production and all of the rest of that, they can say, okay, we want the price of oil to drop to about $2 a gallon right around Christmas time. And then somewhere after they set up a series of provocations lasting, I don't know, four weeks, six weeks, something like that, for oil to suddenly shoot through the roof again in the aftermath of some, uh, you know, something going boom somewhere that's then blamed on the Russians. And now all of a sudden, you know, yesterday uh, you couldn't buy enough, or, or, or I'm, I'm sorry, you know, Filling up your gas tank was, was – I mean, look, folks, I, I, I'm i happy myself. I mean, look, I you know I got to run a generator every day. I got to run a water pump every day. Uh, I've, I've got uh, – you know, moving all of this furniture for our friend. I'm using a lot of gas right now, and it ain't costing me near what it has cost me. Okay, so if I can be this happy about it, imagine what the rest of the country is thinking. And imagine what the rest of the country is going to be thinking when all of a sudden now they can't fill their gas tanks up like they have been right now because gasoline is up at $4 a gallon, and it's all Vladimir Putin's fault. And so what I'm saying here, folks, is that we are approaching this thing known as this perfect storm. And you know, for those of you out there who uh, – are of the impression that uh, all these people aren't crazy enough to get a war started between two nuclear powers. Well, folks, that is exactly what took place on the afternoon of June 8, 1967, when Israel deliberately attacked the USS Liberty for two hours, 
killing 34 on board, leaving 174, I believe, uh, wounded with the intention of sinking the ship and blaming it on Russia's ally at the time, Egypt. We came that close to nuclear war, folks. Uh, people are always talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis and how close things got at that time. No. It doesn't even begin to compare. We were 180 seconds away from dropping nuclear weapons Soviet-allied Cairo. And by the grace of God, the fact that the ship did not sink, uh, the pause button was pushed on this. And then with the rise to power of Vladimir Putin and the reemergence of Russia as a world player, particularly in opposing the forces of uh, international Zionism, and I do believe that, folks. I don't buy into this nonsense that uh, a few individuals within this quote-unquote movement uh, have put forward that Vladimir Putin is uh, is really Jewish and he's working for them and uh, he's just playing his role and uh, he's actually going to hand the whole the whole ball of wax over to the synagogue. I don't believe that, folks. I think he's the real deal. I think that the people behind him are the real deal, and I think that they are intent upon seeing this thing uh, to the end. You know, Putin made a statement after the second invasion and destruction of Iraq in 2003. He was visiting a Russian uh, military academy, I think it was. He gave a speech, and he said, Iraq is all the reason we need for maintaining our military power. Now think about what he's saying there, folks. In just one sentence, Iraq is all the proof we need that Russia needs to remain militarily strong. Iraq had a lot of oil. A lot of natural resources. Russia has a lot of oil, a lot of natural resources. Uh, Iraq under Saddam Hussein became a thorn in the side of Israel and of the United States and of international Jewish finance because uh, Iraq was uh, going to decouple its selling of oil with the American petrodollar. Now, I don't believe that that's the only reason, honestly, folks. I, I believe that there are many reasons why Saddam Hussein's Iraq was destroyed. Um, the petrodollar issue was certainly one of them, but I, I think that it was just one slice of the pie. <clears throat> Likewise, Russia refuses to play ball economically. Um, you know, they are uh, creating their own financial systems with BRICS. And uh, with other groups such as the um, Shanghai Cooperation Association, I can't remember exactly what, what it is, Shanghai, whatever. Uh, but clearly Russia is rallying anti-Western, anti-American, anti-Israel countries and leaders uh, around her cause. You look at Latin America, you look at uh, Venezuela, you look at uh, Argentina, Ecuador – 
uh, Bolivia, Brazil. You know, Russia is challenging the American and Israeli domination of uh, finance and uh, uh, and other things. And so, what what Putin was effectively saying in this speech is that they're coming for us. They're coming for us because we have natural resources that are uh, in this uh, modern industrialized age are very valuable. And because we refuse to be a, a conquered superpower, they are intent upon doing to us what they did to Iraq. And so, folks, what I fear is that we are in for, uh, as Buchanan says in this piece here, 2015 may indeed be the year of increased war because I don't think that the United States is going to back down. In fact, if the United States looked as if it were going to blink on this and we're going to back down, the, the problem that we have is this little country over there known as Israel that right now is being run by a madman named Netanyahu. And if it looked as though, you know, the Americans, you know, that they were going to blink on this and they were going to back away, securing yet another diplomatic and political victory for Vladimir, you know that Netanyahu is not going to sit by to take place. He cannot afford to have something with every defeat, politically and diplomatically, on the part of the Americans and what we would call the Judaized and Zionized West, Russia becomes stronger. And in terms of the Middle East, folks, especially in terms of the Middle East, where you have bought and paid for governments, such as in Egypt, such as in uh, Saudi Arabia, such as in Jordan, you have the people of those countries who know that their rulers are just puppets answering to Washington and to Tel Aviv. And here you have Russia and Iran courting these people, you know, winking their eyes at them and blowing kisses at them and saying, hey, wouldn't you much rather be in an arrangement with us than with the Americans? And I can guarantee you folks, I can't prove it, but I know that it's the fact. The same kinds of tricks that we have seen take place in these various countries, you know, with the Arab Spring where you've got uh, uh, American and Israeli intelligence operatives working under the auspices of U.S. aid and uh, uh, National Endowment for Democracy and Freedom House and all of the rest of them who are on the ground and who are planting the seeds of whatever kind of upheaval the Americans and the Israelis in the West have decided is going to take place. You can be rest assured that the Russians are doing the same thing in countries such as Jordan and Egypt and Saudi Arabia and some of these other countries. They've got their people on the ground too. And so... Folks, what I'm saying is that uh, perhaps we ought to just buckle ourselves in. I think 2015 is going to be a very bumpy year. 
Okay, next story, folks. And by the way, I, I forgot to mention at the beginning of the program uh, my extreme uh, gratitude and uh, uh, satisfaction with the new editors contributing stories at the website of theuglytruth.wordpress.com. Uh, I should have done this a long time ago. I don't know why I didn't even think about it. Uh, but we've got some really good people posting great stories, great commentary, and great artwork going along with that uh, on the website. And um, on that note, I have a story here that I believe was posted by our own uh, Luciana, uh, and it is entitled Lindsey Graham to Netanyahu, quote, the U.S. Congress will follow your lead. This is Lindsey Graham, folks, a senator, a U.S. senator. And if you have followed the news, uh, particularly involving him and Israel, you know that he is a bought and paid for uh, agent for Israeli influence in the Senate, folks. I'll say that. Go ahead, uh, Mr. Senator. You folks, uh, hold on just a second here. We're having some trouble. Hold on. Okay, folks, if you can still hear me, I think you can. I apologize, folks. It's been a while since I've used this blog talk format here. Let me just try something out. I apologize. This is extremely unprofessional. See, this is one of the good things about about uh, using a recorded format, folks, is that uh, you can always fix things later when they go wrong like now. Okay, I, I hope I'm still on the air yeah, it says ongoing call. Hmm. All right, I apologize, folks. This is extremely unprofessional of me. Okay, I'm going to mute that. Okay, it looks like it's working. Okay, so here we go. Um, Lindsey Graham to Netanyahu. The U.S. Congress will follow your lead. I would ask you folks to think back Uh to that time in the not-so-distant past where uh, Netanyahu was addressing the Congress and got, I think it was 29 standing ovations, something like that. 29 standing ovations. This is the man who is more than likely primarily and singularly responsible for 9-11, folks. This is the same Israeli leader who, when he was asked about 9-11, said that he thought that it was a good thing because it was going to generate immediate sympathy for Israel. This is the man, the Israeli prime minister, who gave a speech at uh, Bar Ilan University, and he said, in effect, that, that Israel was benefiting from the deaths of 3,000 Americans on 9-11 because pulled um, the average American into uh, sympathizing with Israel and blah, 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 blah. And now we have Senator Lindsey Graham saying that the U.S. Congress will follow Netanyahu's lead. Now, okay, now that just may sound like political uh, noise, folks, but do you know what... <laughs> Do you know what that means? Most people hear that and they say, oh, that means that uh, 
Graham is going to make sure to um, uh, to to do his part uh, in making sure that Israel gets her thirty million dollars of blood money a day, or that Israel is going to continue to receive uh, protection, political protection in uh, uh, the UN, or you know Israeli spies who are caught selling American nuclear secrets, you know, stealing them, whatever. They're going to be protected. Well, you know how I read what Graham is saying here, folks? I think that one of the things that we're going to have to watch for and which plays very importantly and very dangerously in this whole equation is the fact that Congress, with this last election cycle, has basically been dropped into Netanyahu's hands. Okay, we have both the House and the Senate now, who are decidedly Republican and who are decidedly in the camp of Netanyahu's Likud party. And what this means now is that we have a Congress who, if they are called upon as they were back in 1996, I can't remember the exact year, folks, I apologize for that. If they are called upon to initiate impeachment actions against our president right now, that they have the numbers to do it. And I think that this is exactly what Lindsey Graham was conveying, not just to Netanyahu, but to the Obama administration as well. Graham is Netanyahu's, one of Netanyahu's point men, point men in Congress. And so, periodically, Netanyahu will use toadies like him and like McCain and, and others to deliver certain messages to the Obama administration. And impeachment is one of those things that they will use in order to put pressure on Obama in getting certain things done. Now, obviously, what Netanyahu wants, uh, he wants Obama to shut up about the uh, sanctions, or I'm sorry, about the uh, uh, construction in the West Bank. He wants Obama to, uh, you know, basically to be another George Bush and to give everything that to, to Netanyahu that he demands. This is basically what it is, which includes war against Syria, war against Iran, and war against Russia. So if Obama does not play ball in this regard, now Netanyahu has got a new weapon in his arsenal, which is the possibility, forward slash probability, of impeaching the president. He has the, he has the numbers now to get this done. And even if Obama were to escape conviction, because you know the, the constitutional process is, is that a president is impeached uh, and then, you know, there has to be a, a, a trial, and if he is found guilty of these crimes, then uh, then he can be uh, removed from office, okay? But just being impeached, just having that process take place is a black mark on your career, on your history, forever. Bill Clinton won't be remembered for anything other 
for his president, anything involving his presidency, other than the fact that the Lewinsky scandal, which was a Netanyahu operation, folks, there's no question about it, and the fact that he was impeached. And no president, especially America's first African-American president, wants to be remembered in that fashion. And you can be rest assured that Netanyahu is contacting the various black organizations out there through his people, and they are contacting Obama, and they're saying, look, Mr. President, we African-Americans have waited a long time for this. You know, it's not just you. This is something that resonates deeply with all of us. So please, Mr. President, uh, give the man what he wants so that we don't go down in flames with you. So, folks, that is, uh, you know, that's that's the deal with Lindsey Graham, in my opinion. It's not just that he's playing kissy face with Netanyahu, blowing kisses in his direction. I think that this is Netanyahu's way of reminding Obama, as if Obama needed reminding, that now there is a, a new threat out there on the horizon with regards to his impeachment. That's just my theory, folks, but I think that there's probably more than a uh, a grain's uh, worth of of truth to that theory. Okay, let's see. We're, we're quickly running out of uh, time here, folks. I'm going to have to move along. Uh, let's see. I had some other stories that I wanted to talk about. I apologize, folks. It's been a, it's been almost a year now since I've done a live program in this in this fashion, so I'm a little bit rusty, in addition to the fact, as I said earlier, that I have been uh, moving uh, furniture from point A to point B in the uh, in the uh, cold weather in order to get our good friend Mike Piper comfortably, uh, comfortably moved in. What I would like to do now, folks, and I realize that this is, uh, well, I don't know what you would call this, maybe uh, uh, presumptuous on my part, uh, but what I would like to do is I would like to finish off the program tonight uh, reading my most recent article. And the reason why, it's not that I'm you know, tooting my own horn here, folks, um, put a lot of work into these articles. This is why they take so long now. I used to be able to crank out a couple of articles a week when I worked for American Free Press. But now I put a lot more thought into these things. Uh, And so this is why they take so long, why they take months sometimes. I've been working on this thing literally for months. Uh, But I think that there are a lot of of ideas and themes in this thing that are best expressed, at least on my part, uh, by reading the articles than by just shooting from the hip and doing, uh, you know, an impromptu program like I'm doing tonight. And, you know, folks, this is something that, that I have come to realize, that that the most important thing, I believe, for the f- future survivability uh, of our world is that this problem that mankind has been dealing with now uh, for 4,000 years has got to be dealt with head-on. 
okay? And I'm not talking about Zionism. I'm talking about, as I have said often here, folks, this this mental illness out there operating under the cover of being a religion. And it is, it, it is Judaism. Call it whatever you want. But is the fight for the next 10,000 years, I do believe. Is it going to take 10,000 years? I certainly hope not. But that is how I have come to see this uh, this war for survival that we're all involved in. And we're all involved in it, folks, even those of you out there who don't realize that you're involved in it. And this thing has got to be destroyed once and for all. It's funny, today. Uh, today's gospel reading for Mass told the story of how Jesus, when he had reached the age of 12, uh, Jesus and Joseph and Mary had gone down to Jerusalem for uh, the celebration of uh, the festival. And then on the way back, Mary and Joseph realized that Jesus was not with them. And so they went back to Jerusalem, and when they got there, they found him in the temple, and it said Jesus was there listening and asking questions. And as I was listening to the gospel being read, I thought to myself, this was the point at which Jesus started to understand that there was something wrong with these people, that there was something wrong with the entire Judaic model. This idea of there being uh, one group of people who was uh, uh, chosen above everyone else, who were commanded to do certain, what I consider to be inane things, <clears throat> in addition to all of these religious celebrations where they got together and they celebrated the defeat of Gentile nations of the past, such as Egypt and Persia and Assyria and all of the rest of these. And I just thought to myself, you know, as I was listening to this gospel being read, this was the point at which Jesus came to understand that there was something abnormal and unhealthy about the entire Judaic paradigm. Okay. And I do believe, folks, that that is where our mission lies now, is in not just in exposing Israel and exposing Zionism, but rather in cutting the root of the problem out from its source. Merely hacking away at the branches in the manner that so many people in this quote-unquote movement do, uh, this doesn't do anything, folks. As the American writer, I believe it was Hawthorne, put it, there are a thousand hacking at the roots to, to the one, I'm sorry, there are a thousand hacking at the branches to the one who is hacking at the root. Hacking at the branches merely means that you're going to be hacking at them later when they grow back. And so, because of that, folks, that's why I would like to, uh, I would like to read my most recent piece that I just published on the website, and it's entitled No Sympathy for the Devil or His Advocates. And again, I apologize for the roughness of my voice. 
pardon me while I slurp some of this tea here. And it starts as follows. An old but well-deserved joke goes like this. Question, what do you call a hundred lawyers at the bottom of the sea? Answer, a wonderful beginning. Somewhat harsh language in civilized times such as today's perhaps, but generally speaking, just as the old saying goes concerning smoke and fire being a package deal, people usually deserve the reputations they carry with them throughout life. Like a bad credit score or a criminal conviction attached with superglue, it can be said fairly and squarely that lawyers and others whose, quote, higher calling involves manipulating the law and its accompanying lingo for low-down ends generally reap what they've sown in terms of public perception. After all, who bilks widows out of their bread and water over issues as earth-shattering as eyes left undotted or T's left uncrossed? Who forecloses on homes paid into for decades by working fathers and mothers who've given the best years of their lives playing by the rules, raising their kids along the straight and narrow, and in general contributing something to the betterment of the world? It isn't the ditch diggers, wood hewers, or water carriers doing that for sure. They, Mr. and Mrs. Common Clay, aren't the ones trying to hook and crook their way into inheriting the earth, every square inch of it, nor the ones constructing some personal stairway to heaven with the broken dreams, broken hearts, and broken lives of those they personally destroyed and sent down the highway to hell. No, indeed, it is that lawyerly class who, much like Mr. Slithery taking center stage in the Garden of Eden drama has a particular gift with language in conjuring up some version of non-reality that best suits them. Like those skilled in the use of incantations, spells, and the dark arts, silver-tongued devils such as these have throughout history proven themselves master chefs in cooking up verbal potions designed to seduce the feeble-minded into believing that a sow's ear is actually a silk purse or that a lump of fool's gold is the real deal. And perhaps it is this, their comfort with all different flavors of dishonesty, lawyeries for lying, that makes these scribes and doctors of the law as universally hated as they have been throughout history. Just as the old proverb, quote, what goes around comes around, has accurately suggested time and again, were it not for the fact that in virtually every instance where some species of scandal, corruption, or chicanery comes to light, that some, quote, legal eagle is found comfortably nested in the middle of it all, perhaps then this particular profession would, would not be as undervalued in today's world as it is. As much a nuisance as they are, however, it would be a big mistake for civilized society to simply see them as merely that, a nuisance, and nothing more. As appropriately and justifiably insulting as it is, nevertheless, the pejoratively laced epithet, quote, ambulance chaser, often used in describing them, doesn't even begin to underscore the danger that these creatures pose to an otherwise moral, civilized society. As events throughout time have proven, and particularly now, the life and death influence that they exert over the well-being of the 7 billion-plus human souls inhabiting God's green earth should be enough to make anyone with a vested interest in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness more than a little nervous. It's quote-unquote lawyers, such as the biblical character Joseph, who dive-bomb entire nations over the cliff because of the sweet nothings they whisper into the king's ear during those intimate moments when no other witnesses are present. 
It's the scribes and doctors of the law who, without the slightest whiff of conscience, but with plenty of malice aforethought, commandeer entire ships of state directly into the paths of icebergs, be they political, financial, legal, etc., knowing full well what the outcome inevitably be. It's the, quote, officers of the court, who, in the interests of getting personally profitable yet unnecessary wars started, stand before their citizen peers and perjure themselves in having other nations convicted of imaginary crimes. Having succeeded thus, they then pickpocket otherwise patriotic, hard-working parents of the most precious investments that they've worked a lifetime to create, meaning their children, by sending them off to fight and die with empty promises of God, guts, and glory. They ensure that the political, corrupt political system they created for themselves be becomes a perpetual motion machine of sorts, so that the aforementioned ditch diggers, wood hewers, water carriers, and the rest continue, quote, giving their fair share and, quote, doing their part, as they are bled dry and bankrolling all that get-rich-quick bloodshed, a tragedy too great to be simply Greek and which began rather inauspiciously in the court of public opinion with the words, ladies and gentlemen, of the jury. And finally, later, when the remains of the nation's children, partial or otherwise, return home in flag-draped coffins amidst sad trumpets and stiff salutes, the same scribes and doctors of the law acting as the master chefs in cooking up this cauldron of human suffering are there on cue with bags of phony condolences and buckets of crocodile tears, in order to mitigate the tidal wave of righteous anger that grieving parents are sure to aim in their direction once they realize that they just got bilked out of their life savings, meaning a beloved lost child. Vito Corleone said it best within the pages of The Godfather, quote, A lawyer with his briefcase can steal more than a hundred masked men with guns. And while it is true that most of these, quote, scribes and doctors of the law do indeed share DNA that is, ethically speaking, similar to each other, the fact is that they are certainly not all equal. Like the common street thug who engages in petty, unimpressive criminal activity versus his more organized and sophisticated counterpart who gets chauffeured around town in a stretch limo and oversees a criminal empire exceeding the gross domestic product of many small nation-states, Likewise, are there various castes and conditions within the lawyerly species as well. But perhaps the first thing that needs mention in this regard, certainly a paradox if ever there were one, is that the term lawyer can and indeed should be applied very loosely these days since, technically speaking, one need not have attended law school, attained a law degree, or passed the bar to function as a quote-unquote lawyer per se. Indeed, some of the most momentous events in terms of their political, legal, moral, social, and financial importance have taken place as a result of mouthy, agenda-driven, and morally wanting individuals who spend as much time in a formal legal setting as a prostitute has spent time in a church confessional. And the reason one doesn't need a law degree to get things done these days is because in this, the age of mass media and mass management of public perception, it's the one with the loudest bullhorn, the biggest mouth, and the most generous helping of chutzpah who gets the favorable ruling while the law, precedent, and procedure be damned. No, what counts these days are not the little courtrooms found in every corner of Nowheresville, America, and where things of little to no consequence are decided, but rather in the court of public opinion, 
where quote-unquote juries made up of not mere dozens, but rather hundreds of millions or even billions render verdicts that cause things to shake and quake on a major scale. And of all the firms operating there in the public sphere, clearly the most insidious, oily, and dangerous to the well-being of mortal man is the one that has put that has but one client and one agenda. The infamous, infamously shady, crooked as a dog's hind leg outfit known as Israel, Israel, and Israel. A gang of mob lawyers tasked with protecting and defending a criminal enterprise unlike anything previously seen in human history, it is nothing less than a private army of sorts busting at the seams with thousands of professional loudmouths, enforcers, spies, bribesters, etc., and strategically placed within the most powerful quarters of influence throughout America, the West, and elsewhere. Kingmakers and kingbreakers in their own right, president, prime minister, premier, pope, politician, pundit, preacher or publisher who does not become nauseous with dread the moment that a phone call, registered letter, or knock at the door arrives, courtesy of the firm. Like those instances described by Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn, where KGB personnel would arrive in the middle of the night via their infamous Black Marias to take some unlucky contestant away, either for a friendly chat or for an all-expense-paid vacation to the Gulag, Likewise, a visit from an emissary of Israel, Israel, and Israel can only result in something on the negative side of the number line for anyone on the receiving end. As unsavory as they are, however, and as understandably twitchy as their victims may be about being forced to interact with them on any level, nevertheless, it's not the firm's threats of violence to a person's body, reputation, or ability to earn an honest living that makes its hired guns the existential threat to human civilization that they are. Rather, where they pose the greatest danger to any healthy, well-ordered society is in the courtroom of public opinion, where, through a combination of seductive language and good old-fashioned Judaic black magic, they succeed in contorting reality into something unnatural and unsustainable in an otherwise logic-rich environment. As the evidence is proven throughout history as much as today, the firm's pernicious influence is nothing less than arsenic in nature. Toxic, corrosive, highly radio radioactive, and as long-term deadly as any dirty bomb with a million-year half-life. A voracious cancer impervious to any conceivable treatment, it wages full-spectrum warfare on every existing society with which it comes into contact, whether it is bygone biblical empires such as Egypt, Persia, Assyria, etc., or today's modern reincarnation of ancient Rome located in Washington, D.C. And always with the same result. Not a crack or crevice within any otherwise healthy society is left unscathed and unaffected. Standing in grandstanding before 14 billion eyes and ears of those making up the courtroom of public opinion, the mob lawyers and syndicate spokesmen of Israel, Israel, and Israel brazenly and bold-facedly weave sticky, entangling webs and intricate yarns in giving criminal concepts, criminal precepts, and criminal players places of unwarranted and unjustified respect within civilized Gentile societies. They indict and convict what is intrinsically good, while acquitting and exonerating what is intrinsically evil. All too predictably disastrous results as order eventually and inevitably becomes chaos. Cooperation becomes conflict. 
Enlightenment turns to darkness, and soon what was previously a healthy, vibrant nation, inching closer and closer to unprecedented levels of achievement and progress, now begins the slow march backwards towards its own grave. Like political termites with an insatiable appetite for cultural destruction, they chew away at the load-bearing beams and support columns of civilized society, quietly and imperceptibly, until the structure caves in on itself, destroying everything and everyone within. A highly organized, hyper-focused, sophisticated gang of thieves operating under the cover of night, each member understanding intimately his particular function in the surgery to be performed, goes to work on the machinery of civilization, loosening bolts, removing lug nuts and screws, pulling out wires, cutting cables and hoses, until finally what had been a well-built, productive, efficient, and stable society goes haywire, resulting in a failed state, at which point the quote-unquote surgeons move on with their tools and their booty in search of their next big score. As, quote, gifted and competent as they are, however, when it comes to all of this by way of deception, we shall do war business. What has to be said fairly and squarely in their defense is that none of the grander destructive and apocalyptic schemes being waged today on a global scale by the firm would be possible were it not for the willful suicidal cooperation given it by those unfortunate Gentile societies of both yesterday and today. Like the old lore whereby a vampire's would-be victims are rendered defenseless the moment he's invited into their home, likewise, Satan's little helpers doing the heavy lifting in Israel, Israel, and Israel are only empowered in doing the voodoo that they do so well by the deadly naivete of those who should know better but who choose not to. Like the children's story featuring the little girl marveling at the big teeth, the big nose, and the big eyes of the wolf she has mistaken for grandma, all the signs are there that something is not quite right, but yet due to some deficiency of discernment or common sense, she refuses to see it. And likewise with those Gentile civilizations who've entangled themselves and their future survivability in the sticky webs and intricate yarns spun by the firm, and surrendering their otherwise rational natures to the hypnotizing, intoxicating Judaic black magic that electrifies and empowers the firm's movements and machinations, while at the same time affording the criminal concepts precepts and players that serve as the foundation upon which the firm's identity, existence, and structure rests, what they've done is to sign their own death certificates using their own as the ink. More tragic than the destruction itself, however, is the fact that in having aided and abetted in their own downfall, the Gentile nations cannot claim victim status in the matter. They cannot sue for damages, receive an injunction, or plead ignorance as all of the signs that something was not quite right were there from the beginning. Like ear-splitting sirens warning of an approaching hurricane, every survival instinct within Gentiledom should have been screaming in shrill, hysterical decibels to put as much distance between their otherwise healthy, vibrant civilizations and what was an intrinsically evil presence. Alas, however, as history has made crystal clear, Gentiledom didn't, quote, get the memo. Rather than running for their lives like deer fleeing ravenous wolves, instead those not benefiting from membership in the Twelve Tribes Club have throughout history surrendered their otherwise God-given reason in favor of the hypnotic and intoxicating magic spells conjured up by those unflatteringly characterized by one well-known whistleblower as, quote, 
children of their father, the devil, who was a murderer from the beginning and the father of lies. But again, in giving the devil and his children their due, the ugliest part of the ugly truth in this matter is that, technically speaking, no crime was committed. No fraud took place on the part of Yahweh's chosen invaders and destroyers. There were no hidden clauses, asterisks, abrogations of contract, or caveats emptor hidden, hidden deeply within the fine print. Everything the firm stands for, every microbe making up its criminally inclined nature, and, more importantly, what it must inevitably do when given a free hand, was and is written down in clear, unequivocal, black-and-white language that even the most uneducated layman can understand. The firm's creed, constitution, and the core of its existence is literally as, quote, old as the hills, Mount Sinai specifically, where the, quote, law of Moses was born and where the founding members of the firm first received their training and their license to practice the craft. In plain, open view are scribed the words making up their declaration of war against Gentiledom, and in plain, open view do they celebrate the manner by which previous Gentile civilizations were destroyed in religious feasts such as Passover, Purim, and Hanukkah. And yet, throughout all of this, in the aftermath of infamous mass murders such as Gaza, Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, Bolshevik Russia, World War I, World War II, etc., and in the aftermath of infamous thefts such as at Wall Street, the IMF, World Bank, the Great Depression, the Rosenbergs, Jonathan Pollard, etc., as well as millions of other undocumented and unindicted acts of criminality and war against Gentile society, each directly traceable back to the code in codicils making up the thousands-year-old murder-for-hire contract against Gentiledom known as, quote, the Law of Moses, the lawyers of the firm stand before the jury, brazenly and bold-facedly lying through their teeth in acquitting and exonerating the inherently criminal creed of Judaism while indicting and convicting those prying into its secrets and exposing it as the toxic radioactive and deadly philosophical composition that it is. And the jury, numbering not just in the dozens but rather in the billions, laps up the hypnotic, intoxicating Judaic black magic with which the firm concocts all its deadly brews and potions. As such, the court of public opinion renders its suicidal verdict in favor of the defendant, not guilty, and thus the wrist shackles and the leg irons purposed with the protection of civilized society come tumbling down like the Twin Towers on 9-11. The now acquitted criminal conspiracy and all its loyal members, political termites with an insatiable taste for cultural destruction, are released back in, onto the Gentile streets so that they may continue their murder and mayhem unabated. And a few weeks, months, or years later, after yet another infamous mass murder is committed, after yet another infamous mass theft takes place, and after yet more millions of other acts of criminality and war against Gentile society take place, each one directly traceable back to the code and codicils making up the thousands-year-old murder-for-hire contract against Gentiledom known as the, quote, Law of Moses, the mob lawyers and syndicate spokesmen of Israel, Israel, and Israel will yet again brazenly and bold-facedly weave sticky and tangling webs and intricate yarns in giving criminal concepts, criminal precepts, and criminal players 
places of unwarranted and unjustified respect within civilized Gentile societies. They will yet again lie through their teeth in acquitting and exonerating the criminal conspiracy known as Judaism, while indicting and convicting those prying into its secrets and exposing it as the toxic, radioactive, and deadly philosophical composition that it is. A yet-to-be-told and well-deserved joke goes like this. Question, what do you call a hundred lawyers from the crooked-as-a-dog's-hind-leg firm known as Israel and Israel and Israel at the bottom of the sea? Answer, a wonderful beginning. Somewhat harsh language, civilized times such as today's perhaps, but generally speaking, just as the old saying goes, no man can serve two masters. One must choose to either live or to die, but one cannot choose both. And when it comes to the continued pernicious influence of the firm, arsenic, toxic, corrosive, highly radioactive, and as long-term deadly as any dirty bomb with a million-year half-life, life dictates that there can be no sympathy for the devil or his advocates. That, uh, my most recent piece, ladies and gentlemen, known as No Sympathy for the Devil or His Advocates, which you can read on the website at theuglytruth.wordpress.com. That's it for tonight, folks. I apologize for uh, somewhat disjointed and um, bumpy ride here on the program. As I said, I've been uh, very busy getting our good friend Mike Piper moved into his uh, new home and trying to get him uh, comfortably taken care of with uh, with all of his needs and so uh just um just uh, running on empty as they say folks running on fumes here uh which i'm sure has uh, made itself manifest in uh, in tonight's program anyway folks as i said earlier uh, for the month of january we are going to be doing live programs here uh, on blog talk radio uh, i'm trying to get things uh, up and running again so that uh, mike can get back to work uh, and to find some purpose in um, his very important and the very important contributions that he has given uh, to this thing that we call our movement. And uh, and it's for that reason that uh, I went ahead and um, and uh, flipped out the the dollar bills necessary to to do the live programs here on Blog Talk Radio for this month. Uh, all of you out there who have helped us out especially our new um, contributing editors to the website. Uh, this is just a small token of our appreciation for everything that you do. Um, and uh, and so, folks, on that note, until we meet again, go out and do what you can to save what is left of this obviously damaged and very dying world, if not for yourself, but certainly for those who are going to be inheriting the whole mess. As always, ladies and gentlemen, keep the faith. <laughs>